0: Our speaker tonight is Emmy Award-winning Kitty Isley. She is a writer, editor, and producer for National Public Radio and PBS, and she is the supervising senior editor at Morning Edition, NPR's flagship news program. At NPR, she's overseen coverage of all major news events since 1998 for Morning Edition and Weekend, All Things Considered, for which she's been honored by the Dupont and James Beard Awards. She was a producer of the Civil War series and other films with Ken Burns and has contributed to numerous radio and film documentaries on political and cultural figures such as Nixon and Lindbergh. Isley is an adjunct professor of journalism at Georgetown University and has lectured widely on the foundations and practice of American journalism. She is a past fellow of the US Japan Society, the Salzburg Seminar, and the French American Foundation. She received her bachelor's degree from the Brown University. Most recently, Isley has spent the past year as a Neiman Fellow at Harvard. Tonight she will share lessons learned from her work at Harvard developing a visual vocabulary for journalism and citizens. Please join me in welcoming Kitty Isley to the Boston Athenaeum.
1: So, wow. Huh. wow. God! Wow. It's different practicing your talk to yourself than seeing an audience. So I'm really touched that a lot of people wanted to hear about this, so I'm kind of in the spirit of inquiry, going to ask you to think about what questions you bring to this topic at the end of it, because I'm looking for guidance about how I move forward with research and some proposals. So I will start tonight just to say thank you to the Athenaeum, and I'm not sure who I'm thanking because the light's a little bright, but I did want to say thank you to this place. we were invited, some of us were invited to give different presentations during our Neiman year and this got rescheduled because of the snow this winter. So I'm here because of that, that introduction, but also because we did research here almost 30 years ago when we were filming the Civil War series. And I believe the portrait of Daniel Webster when you enter this building is one of the images we used in the Civil War. And there are some other, I think, art and oil portraits. I know that um, John Adams went over there. Um, I'm not sure that was in the Civil War series, but you probably all know that photo (laughs) or that painting. Um, That's why it's especially meaningful to be here tonight. I remember coming here in the dead of winter, probably 1987, and there was sunshine coming through the windows. I think it was upstairs, and there were paper whites blooming. And I had never smelled paper whites before, and I just thought this place was magic. Um, There is an atmosphere of learning and inquiry that and blossoming thought, I think, that's very specific to Boston and is manifest in this building. So I feel very special being here. I do feel very privileged. So in that spirit, I'm asking you to help me think out loud. So part of this is gonna feel a little like an art history slideshow, maybe, because it's research I'm trying to put together. And the second smaller part is, I think, an inquiry I wanna ask people to help me think through. So with that, I'm. I've never used one of these pointers before because everything I do, I'm writing words. I'm not usually looking at pictures. I'm telling a host to slow it down or you know, trying to get the fact right that we just got wrong. So I spend a lot of time in words and um, thinking about news and how to imagine the people that it affects and how we ought to hear their stories or can we hear their stories and trying to make that possible. So in the same spirit, um, I found myself revisiting work that we had done 25 years ago about the Civil War, probably in the last five to seven years in Washington. And I'll start with this image because, and I'm using the clicker for the first time, so bear with me, because the Internet loves cats. Um, (laughs) This is an example of something that I came across. Do any of you know this thing called Day, where people post images of cats on Saturday? You ever heard of it? This came across, somebody sent this to me on a Saturday, and I was like, what is this? Nothing that ever turned up in our research, but it made sense to me as the kind of thing that would catch the internet's attention. And just for an opening image of what kinds of pictures you associate with the Civil War or American history, this would not have been one. But it's from 1862, and it references, just to give you some background, the white cat is Abraham Lincoln. He has freed the black cat, the enslaved African-Americans in the South, and the great cat is Jefferson Davis, who should have a noose around his neck for trying to secede and take away the Union. I don't know who came up with this. I'm still trying to track that down. Um, it's on eBay if you want to buy one. So <laughs> At any rate, I think it's a good, it's a good sort of introduction to, to my theme, which is how we picture what our history is, As I said, about 25 years after making the Civil War, I started to ask myself about pictures I never saw pictured, and I didn't imagine them. We set out to make a movie about a war, not about slavery itself, but ending slavery became the ultimate purpose of that event. And I think it's significant to say that in this city and in this building, because Boston is so known for its association with abolitionism, anti-slavery activity. But also, and this might be a little contentious, with a history around race and around wealth made possible by the slave trade. And I think a lot of organizations and historical groups and universities and American companies are coming to terms with that. That's not my topic tonight but I have to raise it because it's part of the background of the scholarship that's being done now. The visual weight of our series was clearly military because that's what the visual record shows. When you're gonna make a movie you've got to have pictures so what are you gonna show? you're going to show, in our case, anything that could depict what happened then. And the photography record, at least, heavily tilted toward the military activities. And most of what we showed was, took place between 1861 and 1865, so we were pretty much confined to the era that the war took place. I've been sort of obsessed lately, though, with the idea of absent images and the corresponding absence of stories. To do public history in the media, or to do news reporting, increasingly means using visual tools to tell our stories. So when a visual record is absent, I think it requires a greater effort of imagination to depict experience, to put yourself in another person's shoes, and I think that understanding life in someone else's shoes is the point of all of the really good history and the really good journalism. So my topic, originally, I think we called talking with pictures, but as I started to think about it, I thought it had more to do with missing history. And when I think about a visual vocabulary, I'm thinking about the kinds of images that we imagine exist or that we make mentally when we are asked to think about American culture and American history. I'm gonna talk about what I didn't have in my own imagination when we made the Civil War, what wasn't in my visual database or imagining, how I came to realize that what I've done to try to locate some of the images that we're missing. And secondly, to think about how that is affecting or turning up in the same way today in how we use images in the news and in media, and how, as consumers, we're telling media organizations and computers what we're willing to look at, what we wanna see. So, I'm gonna argue, I think that, The biases of history are still playing out in terms of how we don't imagine American history because we haven't been cued to by any sort of visuals. I'll say when I was doing the research for the series, I was the second person that Ken hired. I was a week out of college. Most of us didn't know where any of the visual records for the Civil War would be except the Library of Congress, which contains a huge archive of photography. And I think we were all so consumed with locating everything visual we could use to illustrate that war that we weren't as aware of what we didn't see. And that's the absence of images around slavery, specific to the war. I would say some of the harder parts of American history aren't generally depicted either, visually, but specific to this talk, it was a very, very thin record, visually, of the experience of enslaved Americans. They weren't drawn, The few images that I was able to locate or find had to do with slavery in Caribbean islands and were mostly made by Europeans for European audiences. So when I go into what we were able to turn up in that series, which just came out in September on its 25th anniversary, we already had a very deep bias in the visual record that was available to us to tell a story. And I don't think I was quite as aware, as I much later became, of how deep that bias runs and how much that drives the conversations we have about history now. I'm going to argue that we may be in danger of having another big absence of memory because of the way we consume media now, because everybody can track what you're looking at and therefore only feed you what you want to see. And we'll come back to that later. So two ideas, discovering what I missed the first time around, and trying to locate any imagery that related to slavery, specifically in Washington, D.C., because that's where I'm from and that's the city I know really well. I'm gonna use that sort of as the argument example. And then a question of whether we're replicating some of the biases that are already embedded in our visual record of our past. So I wanna ask if you can all just close your eyes for a minute, which is always a fun exercise, and picture, when I say Washington, D.C., just see what comes to mind. Anybody want to suggest any images that come to mind or adjectives? Okay, Capitol Dome. Great, okay, Monuments, White House, Mall, Lincoln. You've seen so many major events play out there, and it's a beautiful city. Many years after doing the Civil War, I started to come across stories of enslaved Washingtonians that I didn't know about, and I had no idea, even having done that war, or done that series, that their presence was as influential as it was. Washington had a fairly small enslaved population, um, and I'll show a little slide on that later. But I kept coming across these mentions of people doing masonry or carpentry or marble, um, marble quarrying, the people who helped cook, clean, grow crops, trade them, tend to children. There were a lot of domestic, dom- I'd say domestic servants, but domestic slave labor in D.C. And that record's pretty quiet. When we made the film, I didn't realize that slavery had been legal in my city until 1862, when Lincoln emancipated Washington slaves and paid their owners each, compensation of $300. So stuff I should have been aware of, I wasn't entirely aware of, and those thoughts were in the back of my head when I came to Harvard this past year as an Eamon Fellow and took a class on readings in slavery and freedom. And I wondered why I hadn't imagined more of the black lives of American history, and in my specific case, the history of slavery. I don't want to equate those two, but that was specific to my study, my understanding of the Civil War. The takeaway question I keep coming back to is, what do we imagine is worthy of our attention and whose lives matter? What are we really seeing or failing to see? And I'm going to start with what I didn't see. Um, Not just cats. How many of you saw 12 Years a Slave? A few, some, everybody? Well, it won the Best Picture Award. And its screenwriter is also a commentator for Morning Edition, who I edit occasionally. So I know John Ridley, and I didn't know this story. And I think that's sort of weird, because it all happened in Washington. A free man, this is Chwetel Ejiofor, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, I did go back and listen to it on our interview on NPR. Um, This is the image that comes from his account of being held a slave. That book came out in 1853 and it had some illustrations. This is the actor, obviously, but I just want to give that as a base image because I didn't know that story. I had heard it referenced by a historian during our research only for the mention that you could hear the cries of slaves and the arguments of legislators within the same block. And that this anecdote had been out there somewhere, but no one actually said it came from this book and this is the story you ought to know. I think that's a little weird. Um, And I don't think it was an intentional absence, but nobody was looking at 1843, we were looking at 1861. Still, given how much I know about my city, having done a history of Congress and the Civil War, it's strange that that never came up. So when the movie came out, I was sort of appalled to realize how little I knew about this experience. Um, I'm gonna show you, how many of you know that picture? Well, you might, because it was on on the flyer today. Thoughts? That is the Capitol, but that's the early dome. And I always love the picture because it's so weird. It, it's unsettling to see a building that you think you know looking kind of like it's lopped off or it's, it's wrong. Um, but this is the capital that Solomon Northrop saw when he was, came to Washington as he was being kidnapped. His attack happened within six blocks of that building. And he, there's a reference in the book, several references, and a scene in the movie that is visually putting him in proximity to this symbol of democracy, of free men, later women. I didn't know that happened six blocks from the Capitol. Six blocks from the Capitol, we had not one but several, I will use the quotes, slave pens or prisons for enslaved people who were about to be sold. And I only learned that this year. So that is not a visual picture I have in my head of my, my city of Washington, my nation's capital. Um, No one had ever planted that idea, and I have done research, and I will just spell out the places and things we looked at to give you an idea of the kinds of places that we could have found imagery. For the Civil War, we looked at over a million images, photos, paintings, engravings, newspaper headlines from Boston, New York, Richmond, Atlanta, New Orleans, Montgomery, and Mobile, maps, sheet music, broadsides, advertisements and playbills, handbills, bills of sale, property records, veterans records, carte de visite, stereographs, daguerreotypes, ambrotypes, menus, regimental uniforms, sculptures and monuments like the one up the street on Beacon Hill of um, saint Godin's bas-relief of Shaw's 54th Regiment. So there probably wasn't anything visual that we didn't look at that could have told us the story of the Civil War. And that's why it's very strange to me that something that would happen this close to the Capitol and happened so commonly, would have escaped our notice or our understanding of the city since we did two films. Washington never really had, as I said, a very large slave population or a population of enslaved people. Hang on, this is gonna be a picture of um, Solomon Northrop from the movie, and I'll keep it brief. It's upsetting, um, but keep an eye on the chains because that's a, trope that comes up in the only illustrations that exist. Um, But as I said, there was not a large population of enslaved people in Washington. But what I didn't know is that the nation's capital was a major slave trading site for a big chunk of the early 19th century. That too came up in the movie and it sort of spurred me to do more research. As cotton grew as an export crop and tobacco declined, there was a surplus of slave labor in Maryland and Virginia. D.C. was a very convenient place to ship people south. If you saw the movie or you know the story, that's what happens to Solomon Northrop, Northup, excuse me. The building where he was held is now the Federal Aviation Administration, so you can't see it. Um, I just wanted to make the distinction that in 1850, this is a little later, you had a much bigger population of quote free people than, than you did slaves in DC, so there's some reason to think that we wouldn't know a lot of this history But the fact that this was a trading site really blew my mind when I started to inquire and I had not made any visual imagination of that. I'd never been cued to think of my city that way or think of the activities around enslaving people that happened in Washington. Um, I went searching to see if I could find any imagery that would associate what happened to Solomon Northup with anything else in this city, and I found about five pictures. This is the part that's like the art history lecture. Um, I don't know, if has anybody ever seen this one before? For a group of people who are interested in American history? I hadn't really either, it's from 1836, and several of these images that I was able to locate were done very specifically to show people in chains in association with the US Capitol, to point out the hypocrisy. But that is not an imaginary image. Northup references it, other people reference it. It comes from historical memory, even if what you'll see are several pictures that are trying to illustrate this political point. Um, It's striking to me that I never came across any of these pictures. And that's why, to me, it's so important what a place like the Athenaeum does, especially if you ever hear about the need to, quote, digitize archives or make records available online. The kinds of things that we didn't know existed as we've researched all over the country for the series, sometimes the museums themselves didn't know they existed. So to find this, is it's surprising I'd never seen it, but on the other hand, it's only seeable now because somebody put it online. So I'm deeply grateful that places like this society, like the Library of Congress, National Archives, and several university libraries are really pushing to get visual records available for people to look at and understand history better. I'm just gonna flip through a couple more of these images to give you a different sense of Washington, DC. This is from 1820, and see those two buildings in the back? That's the Capitol without its dome, but obviously someone is making a point in that era to point that out, to point out that hypocrisy. This is a little more imaginary. You've got what looks like people being bought and sold, and the capital in the background. That was where it was discovered in Philadelphia. Um, I'm gonna come back to that. This was a large anti-slavery broadside or poster from 1836, and that's where these pictures were originally gathered. I don't think we included this in our series. It's too hard to film as one big piece, so we may have, we may have filmed composites. Um, I'm, I'm closing in just to give you a sense of how little imagery there is. But this poster that many of us hadn't seen, if you look at the bottom building, that is the building that Solomon Northrup was sent to, a slave prison or a slave pen, as is that one up there. And if you, you'll see in a photo later, these are 12-foot walls made of stucco in a city that is very hot. It's a weird choice to basically enclose city blocks with one long wall. And so as I started to look at the records and notice some of these buildings that are still around, I thought, that is strange, there's no breeze, there's no way to see inside. Why would you build a building that way in a tropical city? Anyway, just keep that thought in your mind, um, and I'll see if I can get a little closer to these images. This happened another six blocks from the Capitol in another direction, a different slave dealer. And again, none of these pictures have come up, came up in any of my research. This is all pretty recent that I've been able to find anything online. And I'm also hesitant to just show these as like, here's African-American history. That's not the point. This is the dark side of what America did. And so not having it in my imagination means I'm not thinking about what its impact was. Oops, flip over. This was another one I came across. These were free African-Americans being sold because of their debts. This also happened in 18, I wanna say 1836. These are very rare images. This obviously has been reproduced, but you don't picture Washington like this. You don't picture these things happening. So I went and looked around and found what written records I could find and made a little PowerPoint map with my talented skills. I don't know how many of you use PowerPoint very well. I don't. Um, This is the mall. How many of you know the mall in Washington? Obviously, I would think. This is the mall in 1820 or so. The capitol's right there. Slide down that avenue, and the White House is kind of on the upper left corner. Slide down that other avenue, and you hit the Potomac River. Um, the mall at this point is kind of mushy and it had been used to, almost it was a swamp that they floated up some of the marble for the Capitol. all of those circled spots reference places that people were bought and sold they were either large quote unquote slave pens or prisons or they were sort of in in one case known as um, find this, how to explain this well I'll start with the ones I can point to and that's why this green thing will help That circle there, which is three blocks from the Capitol, is a building that's no longer standing. It was called the St. Charles Hotel. It advertised its conditions for slaves. It had slave pens that were elaborate in the basement, six 30-foot-long cells with iron doors, wall rings, and chains. And the hotel promised that any slave that escaped, the owner would be compensated for their full value. I'd never heard of this. On these two, that's where the FAA is right now. Right here is where the Air and Space Museum is, and the Hirshhorn, the Smithsonian Castle. This smaller circle was where Solomon Northrop was held. That was a place called the Yellow House that had about a block of property. The larger circle was a place known as Roby's Slave Pen and Tavern. And you almost can't even imagine those words in the same sentence. And it wasn't hard to find written records of this. It was almost impossible to find any visual records. This part of the mall right here, excuse me, right there, is now where the National Archives is and also was a major, known as Central Market. Slaves were traded there and all of these places bought and sold, sent across the bridge to Alexandria for shipment south. So, in your imagination of Washington, that probably never, you couldn't have pictured it. Or I couldn't have pictured it. Maybe you could have. But it doesn't accord with any of the iconography or the stories we've told ourselves. And it's not of the same weight but I think it is just so important to understand that this happened and we never wanted to picture it. If you're a visitor to DC you're probably not going to see it although the new um, Museum of African American History will open in 2016 and I hope that they'll have some more material about this. But I find myself sort of horrified that this was These are scenes that were routine in people's uh, passing your eyes every day. And somehow that memory was very quickly vanished or deep-sixed in Washington. Um, That's what I mean when I come up with the idea of a visual vocabulary. There are visual elements that I'm not picturing that either weren't pictured or I don't have the imagination to think about, to ask a question about. So that's a kind of a chapter or a chunk of data or a chunk of experience that we, I don't think, have been asked to consider. We're not confronted with those images. We have a lot of white marble monuments in Washington. And I don't know that we need to spend all this time on thinking about what happened in 1820, but I think it is a really glaring absence that it's not known and that it's so little depicted. I think when you think of Washington that way, it forces you to ask a different story about the nation's capital. And that might make it easier to notice a kind of a deep bias that I think we've had to bury these images or these memories quite so deeply. There's a, for some reason, none of these were circulated, known, widely understood. For whatever reason, we've decided not to make the visual record memorable around this. It doesn't accord with the stories that we've told about our lawmakers and our democracy. Since the series, we've had some acknowledgement of slave contributions to building Washington. During our research, the Capitol historians could never really pin down an account of slave labor being used to build the Capitol, although it was widely assumed. The White House recently has and has published um, payroll ledgers with the names of enslaved people who were owned by the architect of the, Washington, or the White House and whose work was charged to the government. For construction work. So if you go on the White House Historical Organization's Historical Association's website, you can find some of that record, which makes me kind of happy because this is a city I really value and love. I hope that's making the point that doesn't seem as obvious as maybe it seems now. But if you can't imagine what happened, then you can't see your city for its full flaws and the kinds of experiences that are within four generations of memory. And that's why I think it's so, um, I say valuable, so necessary to sort of be more critical of noticing what isn't shown. When I say absent images, it's the lack of an image that would have prompted me to think about Washington differently. That's when I think of a visual vocabulary. These are missing words, missing pieces of my dictionary. Um, How excited are you about seeing buildings of Washington? Maybe I'll just move forward. There is one building that I came across that um, still stands, and I didn't realize this. This is in Alexandria. Has anybody been to Alexandria? Right across, okay, great. City across the river from Washington, but originally part of the federal city, so it's in Virginia, but originally it was part of D.C. This is now an Urban League headquarters. I have passed this building many times on the way to Happy Hour in Old Town Alexandria. I didn't know this had been the major slave trading post in the upper Atlantic for 30 years in the 1830s, about 1820 to 1850. I encountered it when the New York Times was doing its series on the Civil War and publishing photos every week from from the era, and I remember thinking, I know that photo, I remember that building from the Civil War, I wonder if it's still around, and then I realized, oh, I did know that building, I knew that building. Again, every day for 30 years, people are being marched down a main street in Washington, Duke Street to the docks of the Potomac to be sold south, people in chains. And everybody sees this every day for 30 years. There is no visual record of it whatsoever. Alexandria has not wanted to ever deal with it. I think they are now. This is a city that has the statue of the unknown Confederate at its main main intersection. And I, I don't mean to belittle a city, but I think the fact that this stands in plain sight, has a small historical marker, and now has a museum in the basement, although it's been flooded, that there's a reason nobody wanted those images remembered. And I'm not really sure what that reason is. I have a few thoughts, but, and I don't even know if it's um, fair to try to dredge up painful memories that may be within family memory for four generations ago. But if you do a whole series on the history of a war that was supposed to get rid of slavery, it's sort of a blinding absence to not know what took place within five miles of your own neighborhood and a place that you've passed on your way to go out and have a drink. So I also think, and I did notice a lot when I walked around Boston, I started to think about what had happened that I hadn't seen or pictured because Boston has a much richer visual record. And maybe I'll ask you all to think about that. I'm gonna show you some of the pictures because they're interesting and because once the Union troops turn up, everybody turns on the cameras. This is that building in 1864. The Union Army's already come across the river at the very beginning of the war, taking it over. But you can see, very obviously, dealers and slaves. It had been named something else before, but still had the slave thing there. See that side building? It's about twice his height. That was one of the the pens or the outdoor yards. Um, that part of the building doesn't still stand. And I'm happy to say it's been used as a hospital, a church, and now there's part of it that's um, assisted living for the elderly. So it's had a very redemptive use as a building. But I found these sort of astounding, that this was you know, someplace I had passed routinely, and I never thought of myself as any, living anywhere associated with something like that. Another picture of that. This is a woman, probably emancipated, probably same 1864. These are from the Library of Congress. And that is actually one of the jails in that building. That part, I think they've ripped down. And this may have been on the side, but um, it's, you know, I found it very haunting. I remember looking at these during our filming and not having any idea that that building was still around. I'm going to leave you with something a little lighter, but I'm going to move on to my idea about the media that I can use your help with. Obviously, the Civil War broke out at the dawn of photography, so you had this momentous event that people wanted to photograph. And the default was to photograph the people who were going to fight, men in uniform. That meant, again, a very skewed visual database for us. African Americans and women really weren't photographed to anywhere near the extent that soldiers were. You might have been a person of means and gone to get your picture taken in a studio for your family, and there are quite a few in New England particularly. But it is extremely rare to find photos of women doing anything routine, as we did find for many of the Civil War soldiers, and almost impossible to find images of African Americans, except those taken after the war, after a certain area had been emancipated. So visually, our lopsided bias, I don't think I was totally aware of, except that I kept thinking, why aren't there any pictures of women? But it didn't occur to me that no one ever took them. I just thought I couldn't find them. Again, that means millions of lives aren't really visually in our imagination. Are any of you familiar with the Agassiz photographs at Harvard? They're they're in our series. I'm not going to show them here. They're, they're made of freed slaves to show some of the scars of slavery. They're made almost as anthropological studies, so I'm not really comfortable putting them up, because I think the spirit they were made in really means you need to be careful with using them. But that's a very good example of things that were done in good intention, I think, but would show us a visual record of the scars of something, and I don't quite feel like I ought to be broadcasting them but they're in the series and that's pretty much the database there are quite a few images of people on southern plantations particularly the sea islands because the Union Army went down there and somebody got down there with a camera but there's just not a lot to show or a lot to prompt your own imagination of how a very large part of the country lived. I wanna keep an eye on the clock as I need to move toward this this newer question. This is brief, but obviously I'm in news and we spent the last year, I have a couple of Nieman colleagues here and I credit the Nieman Foundation for really forcing us to engage with how journalism's gonna continue. And a big part of that, including for NPR, is how to get an audience's attention in a device age, you have to have a visual to get someone to pay attention or engage with your story. Especially in radio, that's a little weird. We haven't done that. We haven't thought that way. We've been in discussions with lots of news organizations about how they're doing that. How do they move from a print story to a more visual presentation? And one thing came up that really arrested me, and that is that this organization has an audience, about half of their audience comes from Facebook references. So they're very conscious when they publish a story that they've got a photo that can go on Facebook or go on Twitter or be sort of the image that will cause you to engage. And they found, and this is a researcher who mentioned this, that women were not clicking on pictures of dark-skinned men. And the largest audience on their, of their Facebook group, Facebook users, are women between 25 and 40. So they, what they call, A-B tested this. They changed out the main image, left the headline or the search words the same. They contrasted it by gender. It didn't matter. It didn't matter what the topic was. Global health, Black Lives Matter, a rapper from overseas, Barack Obama, women weren't clicking on things that had a photo of a dark-skinned man, which is so chilling and I think probably extremely unintentional. By anybody. They just didn't choose to engage with that story. They may not have seen themselves in that story. And I don't think individually anybody thinks that they're behaving in a biased way. But that feedback now comes to us as media editors very immediately. And we can tell when somebody's not opening a story within seconds. And we can tell what stories don't get opened or looked at or listened to very quickly because you're on a, on a device that feeds it right back to us. So in two ways, I think there is a possibility for another absence of imagery. Both editorially, the people who are choosing what you see know what you're not going to want to engage with and may not use that as a lead image. But more insidiously, I think, is that you're telling computers and algorithms what you're willing to look at. And it's the algorithms that are going to decide what you see, just the way Netflix does or Amazon. It's also happening in news not probably with the same depth of marketing. I think that's really weird. And I think it's going to change how much we are exposed to things that we, A, might not want to see or don't even know we want to see. I can speak a little later in questions about an analogy I'm discovering for a series I'm doing on women and aging in terms of how the media addresses elderly people's images particularly older women, which now I'm in that category, apparently. I didn't know that. Um, And one of our guests here, writer Anne Bernays, is gonna be featured in that series with a beautiful essay. So I just wanna say thank you for being here. Um, I'm discovering a lot about how media mechanisms treat imagery and how the audience's feedback starts to get into a loop where it doesn't even matter what an editor thinks. I don't want to end on that down note, so I have a couple of thoughts. I'm finishing with this photo, which is my favorite of the Capitol, as this unfinished dome. And I think, again, you don't have that image in your mind when you think of Washington or dysfunctional Congress, that something's unfinished, that it needs to be completed. And so I sort of like that metaphorically. We used it in the Civil War as a a democracy that's always in process of building itself. Um, And I think of that as I think history. We're still kind of even asking questions now about what's missing. And I went on the Athenaeum's uh, website to see what I could find online before I came up to Boston. It wasn't that, and it wasn't that, I apologize. It was this. Um, And that seemed like a very cheery note. It's sort of a funny sweetheart portrait in the Granary Cemetery behind the building. I think she's the librarian and he's a library assistant. And it just made me think, there's a great picture that I wanna know the story of. And that's to me the value of not knowing what's available and being able to poke around and find it. So I'm gonna leave with this thought, which is that as an editor in radio and as consumers of the media, we're all living in an increasingly visual world. Everything is swimming past your eyes all day in a way that has never happened before. But I think without realizing it, very silently, there are a lot of images that aren't going to come across your eyeballs that you don't even realize aren't there. So I imagine what kind of visual vocabulary I need to imagine, where I will turn in my own mind to picture what this country is, who commands my attention, who engages my empathy and who activates our moral concern. I hope you'll have thoughts to share. I know that's sort of a broad and sweeping-sounding statement, but I really can use input about where to take that kind of question, and I'm eager to hear from you. So thank you for letting me think about this.